This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Colonel's Daughter by Robert Coover, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 2013. The Colonel is dispassionately systematic, observant, calculating, exacting, ultimately ruthless. The story was chosen by Hari Kunzru, who's the author of one short story collection and five novels, including The Impressionist, Gods Without Men, and White Tears. Hi, Hari. Hello. So what's your history with Robert Coover? Are you a lifelong reader of his? Or? I got to him quite young, yes. Um, when I was, I think, 18 or 19, I had one of these sort of formative friendships with somebody who had a more sophisticated literary taste than me. And he had a, a shelf full of uh, American fiction, uh, mostly sort of 60s and 70s postmodernist fiction and sort of fabulous fiction of, of uh, things like John Barth. And Coover's Prick Songs and Descants was one of those books. And I, in the way that you do at that time, I kind of took on his canon as sort of wholesale as my <laughs> new canon. And, and so, yeah, Bob Coover was, was part of that. Yeah. What was it that appealed to you? Well, I think I hadn't been aware that you could have such formal fun with with storytelling i mean coover is is a game player in almost every sense you know his concerns with fiction are are, are not straightforwardly to do with uh making life appear on the page he's interested in in how signs and symbols and and units of meaning move around together and that was all that was all quite new to me at the time and has really informed my fiction ever since. Were you thinking of yourself as a writer already at that point? I wasn't quite daring to, but I was certainly... <laughs> I mean, that's that was the thing I admired most at that time. I mean, I think I started writing seriously when I was sort of 21. Like, I left undergraduate life and, and didn't really think of anything else I wanted to do. So in the sort of reckless way that you do at 21, I just thought, right, well, I'll write a novel. Um, <laughs> so... I suppose from eighteen to twenty-one, that's quite a that's quite a uh, a steep curve from sort of discovering that all this <laughs> stuff to to suddenly deciding to, to do it. it. But yeah, yeah. Well, then in twenty eleven, you wrote a piece for the Guardian about Robert Coover, and I think met him at that time, maybe before that. And you said that he was refreshingly unconcerned with psychology, sympathy, redemption, epiphanies, and conventional narrative construction. Do you think that still holds true of what he writes now? I think he he makes gestures in all those directions, but I think he's he's a um he is a postmodernist of the old school and his you know his primary concerns are not that. You know, he's not trying to fool you into thinking that life is on the page. He's he's interested in almost unpicking storytelling even as he revels in it. Mhm. And do you think that this story, The Colonel's Daughter, is representative of that? I think it has that quality in that I mean, it's a rather good story in that you can read it and take certain sorts of traditional narrative pleasure in it. There is tension within the, the situation. There are recognizable characters. But you notice quite quickly that these characters are very explicitly presented as types. And there's something going on that's to do with this a formal dance of a coup being planned. And uh, as things go on, there's a certain sort of dissolution, which I think is very much a coup trademark, that a sort of reality is set up and then a string or a thread is is tugged. I mean, almost, quite, almost literally in this in this story, and that it revolves around clothing quite a lot of it, and then the whole edifice sort of slips away, just sort of out of sight. I mean, things that are substantial become intangible. Things step back into the shadows. Yeah, what you thought was was a straightforward narrative, or was at least set up for one, becomes something else. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Hari Kunzru reading The Colonel's Daughter by Robert Coover. The Colonel's Daughter The conspirators sit smoking thoughtfully, sipping brandy, around the fire in the colonel's den. The decision has been made. 
They've each entered here in uncertain pursuit of some vague enthusiasm, and looking behind them, they've seen that what they passed through was a doorway into history. Soon, there will be no turning back. Probably there is already no turning back. They have been chosen by the colonel. They do not all know one another well, and are not sure they trust one another. They murmur softly, chuckle self-consciously, toast to their luck in the coming adventure, but remain watchful. The colonel's daughter enters with coffee and sweet biscuits. This is a welcome distraction. She makes small talk not merely possible but necessary, allowing consciousness of the conspiracies to sink back down the well and making of the doorway an ordinary door into the next room. She is dressed in a regional costume of handwoven skirt and apron, with a crisp white blouse and an embroidered vest. Perhaps the colonel has suggested this to her to inspire national pride among those gathered here on this historic occasion. Her presence in place of the servants is also a reminder of the meeting's sensitivity, the need for absolute secrecy. Soon, the colonel thinks, watching her affectionately, she will be the president's daughter, or else an orphan. He feels certain that at least one person in the room will betray him. Such a betrayal may not prove fatal to the plot, though it will surely precipitate things. He hopes that, when the moment comes, he will be ready. The threat of betrayal is widely felt in the room. There is, for example, a sinister-looking man with bulging eyes behind thick bottle-glass spectacles, sitting silently apart, whom no one seems to know. But no one wishes to reveal his anxieties for fear of revealing his temptations as well. So instead of watching one another, the conspirators concentrate on the colonel's daughter as she passes among them with the coffee and the biscuits. The colonel watches them watch his daughter. Some gaze up at her face, others at her breasts or at her hips, her costume, her legs. The men who stare at her figure are not necessarily less trustworthy than those who watch her face. And those who avert their eyes or meditate seemingly upon their brandy are probably the most dangerous of all. One who turns away as the colonel's daughter brushes softly past his shoulder is a former professor of history and law. In fact, the colonel's daughter was once his student before he was expelled from the university, disbarred from law practice and jailed for his overt opposition to the current regime. His political convictions, ideologically supported, call for a total revolutionary restructuring of the government, which he holds to be a dictatorship of the oligarchy. And so he feels somewhat ill at ease in this room full of unscrupulous businessmen, professional soldiers and political opportunists. He fears that after the revolt things will be the same, if not worse. In fact, he is certain of it, but bitterness has drawn him to this plot and keeps him here. Life is passing him by. This may be his last chance. And, if they are successful, bold action may yet result in his achieving all that he longs for. The colonel is aware of the professor's doubts and distrusts his ideology. The professor has written a controversial book on the subject, now banned he's their only link to the students and the labour leaders and there's hope that he will deliver their support. The colonel was partly responsible, though the professor does not know this, for his dismissal from the university and the imprisonment and torture that followed. At the time, the colonel wanted only to protect his daughter, but now it has provided him with a valuable ally. If the professor somehow survives the coup, his book will remain banned and he will, no doubt, have to be locked away again. What's more, the colonel is certain. Mankind is a transparent mystery. The professor knows this, but has joined them anyway, because he cannot do otherwise. The deputy minister of the interior, who has entered into the conspiracy out of impatience with the liberalising tendencies of his colleagues in the ministry, has a less sanguine view of the professor, whom he sees as the duplicitous leader of a virulent band of underground ideologues bent on destroying church, state and the traditional family. If the deputy minister were president, he would not imprison the professor, he would have him executed and his books burned. And perhaps he will be president. The colonel is a sentimental and self-indulgent old fool who could be dealt with summarily if necessary. The deputy minister is uncomfortable with the daughter's comportment. He feels there is wantonness in it. She's flaunting her patriotism, but also her body, openly flirting with this room full of conspiring men. He smiles benignly on her, but only insofar as the room includes her, and like her father, observes thoughtfully the reactions of the others. 
The deputy minister perhaps underestimates the colonel, underestimation of one's adversary being a fatal weakness of many ambitious men. Though a congenial pipe smoker with a relaxed fatherly manner, the colonel is dispassionately systematic, observant, calculating, exacting, ultimately ruthless. Knowledge is power, and there's little that he does not know about the men in the room. He's met with each of them individually, some of them countless times, as well as with many others not invited here today. And because of his calm, pensive manner, men and women alike open themselves up to him. He knows, for example, that the deputy minister accepts substantial sums of money from the wealthy owner of the nation's largest chain of department stores, also present, in return for casting a blind eye on the merchant's lucrative smuggling operations. He knows that the department store magnate is aided in his operations by the naval captain, a drunkard and a womanizer who is sitting beside him. An unsavory trio, yet all three are important to the colonel's plans, providing inside contacts, money, links to the church and the nation's elite, and access to a flow of arms and munitions, and all three are potential scapegoats if things go wrong. The captain raises his empty glass as if to propose a toast, and another round of brandies is poured. The department store merchant has bought to the gathering an expensive foreign brandy, far finer than the national brand being served, but the colonel has not opened it, wanting no hint here of any foreign influence, however much there might actually be. He has nevertheless left the bottle out, in full view, to see who might be distracted by it, who dismissive, who disappointed by what he's been poured. The colonel's old preparatory school classmate, the former city police chief and one-time director of national security, for example, gave it the sort of cursory glance one might bestow upon an irrelevant object at a crime scene, whereas the corpulent real estate tycoon and property developer, dressed, as always, in a tailored Panama suit, has cast several longing glances in that direction. The developer is a quiet, witty man, with a taste for luxury cultivated during his years of rapid acquisition and affluence under the previous regime. His ascendancy came to an end when the current president, after overthrowing his predecessor, confiscated most of the developer's properties. But the president and his gang of thieves have so far been unable to gain access to the millions the developer is said to have sequestered in foreign bank accounts and investments. And it is that money, along with what the department store magnate can provide, that the colonel hopes will fuel their coup. Entire military units must be suborned, and key alliances bought. The former police chief's motivations for being here, beside their lifelong friendship, are self-preservation and revenge. He was dismissed from the security forces on trumped-up charges of corruption and police brutality, the government using purchased witnesses and spurious evidence. That the ex-police chief is probably guilty of such crimes, or others like them, is of no consequence to the colonel. What is of consequence is the president's cynical manipulation of the law to further his own ends. The chief will be their public image of a righteous man wronged. What motivates the developer is simpler, pure greed. He wants his properties back, which would make him perhaps the most reliable of the colonel's confederates, were it not for his wry, sad-eyed cynicism. Nothing is quite real for him, including life itself. Loyalty is not alien to his nature, but it's not part of it either. Perhaps the least reliable of them all is the dashing young biplane pilot whom the colonel's daughter is serving now. Though he's not likely to betray their cause, his parents, with their vast agricultural holdings, are lifelong friends of the colonel. He may simply choose to walk away, depriving the colonel of a crucial military component of his strategy. Formerly an Air Force major and a proven leader, the pilot was dismissed from the service by the president, who distrusts him and has now developed a successful commercial crop-dusting business. There are rumours of drug running on the side. The colonel doubts that they're true, but it's of no matter. The pilot showed none of the developer's hesitation or the ex-police chief's disdain upon spotting the brandy, but walked directly over to the bottle, picked it up, examined the label and lit cigarette dangling waggishly from his lips, smiled appreciatively. A handsome fellow with new wealth of his own, he is a bit reckless and something of a playboy, but the colonel, who has known him since he was a boy, has taken him to his heart recognising in him something of himself. The fellow's frank, bemused examination of his daughter suggests that he is mentally undressing her, and the colonel is encouraged by this. The pilot has been aware for some time that the colonel may have singled him out as a possible match for his daughter, but he has shrugged off the idea, not wanting to be tied down. 
It was family loyalty more than any interest in either the daughter or the nation's tedious power struggles that brought him here today. That and the spirit of adventure itself. He and the colonel's daughter often played together as children, she like a kid sister to him, and until he entered the room he still thought of her as such. But she is much grown and beautiful. He believes she may well have dressed in her peasant costume for him, a suggestion of both their childhood past and their possible future. The delicate aroma she exudes, her open smile, her unharnessed breasts bouncing exuberantly in her crisp white blouse as she refills his glass, bring on a sudden arousal. He lights another cigarette and leans back rakishly, peering up at her with a mischievous grin. Now that he thinks about it, the appointment as Air Force Chief of Staff that the Colonel has offered him is not without its appeal. When the Colonel's daughter approaches the department store magnet to refill his glass, he grasps her hand-woven apron and brings it close to the rimless spectacles perched on the end of his bulbous red nose. Blushing, she unties the apron and backs away, leaving it in his hands. And after a moment's study, he identifies not only the village whence it came, but the probable weaver, impressing everyone with his expertise. The apron's design, he explains with mock solemnity, stroking his pencil-lined moustache, includes traditional fertility symbols that imply that its wearer is desirous of offspring, or at least the making of them. He holds it to his own waist and rolls his eyes, drawing a burst of laughter. While the geometric patterns, seemingly mere decorations, are actually abstractions of the sexual act, or acts, because several exotic variations are depicted. The naval captain snatches the apron from him and asks how one can tell which acts are shown by which patterns, or he sees as lines. The merchant does not reply, merely winks and lights a fresh cigar, leaving the others to their jocular speculations as the apron is handed about. Watching the colonel's daughter, smiling innocently in their midst, the merchant mentally strips her to her underwear, which he imagines to be silken, and so thin as to be almost, but not quite, transparent. He recently brought a new lingerie line into his flagship store in the city and oversaw the dressing of the mannequins himself, noting how much more enticing they were with underwear on than without. The professor does not take up the apron when it passes by, but stands and walks to the window, where he looks out upon the vast walled garden of the colonel's estate. In it there are statues of national, mythological and religious personages, some on pedestals, others forming parts of fountains or rising out of flowers and foliage as if born from them. And the professor takes note of the odd coincidence, if it is a coincidence, that the number of statues is exactly the same as the number of people in the room, including the colonel's daughter, who might be said to be represented by the figure of the grieving virgin standing at the far end of the garden over what may be an old family grave. Such patterns, like those of history, often capture the professor's attention. The dogged, even futile search through the world's detritus for meaning. Most romantic gestures fail, he knows, but they leave traces. Life, at best, a brief smear on the turning page. He has written about this, less dourly, in his latest book, The Doorway into History. The professor, having glanced earlier at the apron while being served by its wearer, saw in it not so much fertility images as subtle symbols of resistance to oppression especially that of the militarised rich, with those geometric lines like bars to be broken to free the life arrested behind them. In spite of the military caste she comes from, the colonel's daughter was his favourite student. The deputy minister, angry at the alliances one must make in this world in order to purify it, is having second thoughts about joining this insurrection, but he also knows that it is too late for second thoughts. He regards the professor with utter loathing and imagines the sinister thoughts that must be passing through his warped mind as he stands there at the window, plotting, no doubt, as is his natural want. Perhaps he's even sending signals to someone outside. The deputy minister wonders if the rumours of his participation in student orgies are true and if the colonel's daughter was involved. The deputy minister has also been preoccupied with the possible hidden meanings in the apron's designs. Do they contain any cryptic messages? And if so, has the department store magnet, with his studied knowledge, read them and kept their meaning to himself? Is the face of their perilous enterprise hidden in the apron? Or in the embroidered vest? The woven skirt? 
in which the daughter's hips and thighs are tightly clasped, her least movement animating its stylized figures, setting them dancing provocatively before his eyes, her body not concealed, but teasingly revealed. The deputy minister shifts uncomfortably in his chair, and with a weak smile looks up at her and accepts another brandy, though he had meant not to. Watching the apron circulate through the room as an object of both affection and ridicule, the colonel realises that once things begin, his daughter will become a target. Perhaps she is already a target. The apron, until a moment ago, was part of her, is still part of her as it is handed rudely from one man to another, a violation of a sort. And these are his presumed friends, his comrades in arms. Imagine if she fell into the clutches of his enemies. He will ask the convent, of which his family has long been a patron, to take her within its thick stone walls for a time and provide her with further sanctuary should the attempted coup fail. He understands, of course, that the passing of the apron, now in the plump, ringed fingers of the real estate developer, is primarily a distraction from the terrible seriousness of their enterprise, the coarse laughter, a release from the unacknowledged tension. The developer gives the apron a little flutter. I see evidence here, he remarks, with his customary fat man wheeze, of a mocking challenge to the state, for in the figures of the mating animals, the ones on top are varicoloured, dressed, as it were, in colourful native costumes, but those below at the receiving end wear the colours of the nation. Need I say what common expression this brings to mind? Whereupon, as more laughter rattles through the smoke-filled room, the mustachioed editor of the city newspaper, closed by government order since the last election, arrives, the last of the colonel's conspiratory assembly. He rushes in, looking unkempt, harried, flicking his half-smoked brown cigarillo into the fireplace and taking up the brandy offered him, tossing it down in a single swallow but rejecting a refill, muttering apologies for his late arrival. The colonel introduces him to the group, though most know him already, some all too well, and also explains that the man with the heavy bottle glass spectacles is his family doctor. A man of impeccable discretion, the colonel says, and the future director of the National Health Services. The doctor nods without smiling. He is also, the colonel adds, the doctor of the president's wife, whom all present know to be a woman subject to periodic fits of depression and in frequent need of personal counsel. Now the others nod back, the hint of a smile flickering on some faces. The apron is handed to the editor, who stares at it in puzzlement, shrugs, tosses it over the back of a chair. He's the riskiest of the colonel's choices, a man not known for keeping confidences or entering into alliances. He may be here merely for the story that's in it. Moreover, he has managed at one time or another to offend just about everyone in the room, including the colonel, who once was targeted in a series of articles on alleged abuses of the military. But as a skilled shaper of public opinion with a vast range of connections to all elements of society, the editor could be an invaluable asset to their movement. And, like almost everyone else in the room, he has his darker secrets. The death of a former lover who was said to be blackmailing him has never been adequately explained, for example. The colonel feels certain that he can secure the man's full cooperation. The professor, his back now to the window, surveys the colonel's motley band of privileged renegades. Not surprised, but not heartened either by the arrival of this capricious servant of the status quo. The professor knows about the cloud hanging over the editor's past, because at the time, all those years ago, they were competing for the same ill-fated woman. They were also competing in university debates about the future of the nation. The professor has always been a romantic at heart, his politics unchanged, though then much less disciplined and informed. His young adversary, the future newspaperman, had no politics at all. For him, it was all just a game to be played, Eloquence and cleverness of more value than being right. Still true. In this gathering, however, the editor is at least something of an intellectual and the professor's only feasible ally. He reminds the editor now, addressing him directly. Behind him, twilight has descended in the garden. That in his student days, he once wrote a much-praised essay on the coded language of the disenfranchised. Is there a hidden or symbolic message woven into the apron? What does he think? The editor, a new cigarillo dangling from his lips, picks up the apron again as if to study it and considers his present audience, piecing together the various strands of the colonel's strategy, the three branches of the military, 
the civil police, business leaders, the government. The deputy minister's presence here is the only real news, plus the discredited professor with his presumed links to the students and the unions, while searching for a response that will be both safe and original. The patterns on the apron are traditional ones that he has in the past interpreted in various ways, depending on the circumstances and his own purposes at the time, and he could no doubt find new meanings suited to this occasion, but just then the colonel's daughter brings him a cup of coffee and offers him a sweet biscuit. He knows from those debates of old that the unanticipated wins the day, so he tosses the apron back over the chair with a shrug, calling it a creation of routine habit, pops the biscuit into his mouth, then seems to draw up short, his eye on the daughter's woven vest. Ah, however... He points at a figure on the front of it, near the tip of one breast. May I? He asks through a mouthful of crumbs, and the daughter slips the vest off shyly and hands it to him. He holds the vest up before him, still chewing, his head moving left to right as though reading it. The story embroidered here, he says, running a stained finger over the threads, is an ancient pagan one about a national god or hero who taught the people how to read the sky. All these sequins are in reality, stars, and the beads in their various colours represent the different human races. What is unusual about this design is the way the beads are not simply scattered about the garment, but are gathered into little clusters and enclosed in chain-stitched circles, suggesting the formation of societies, or perhaps, see here the metal threads, of armies. The colonel recognises that the editor, with typical flair, is improvising as he goes, and probably few in the room believe a word he's saying but he has captured their grinning attention. Now they're all passing the vest about to see if they can see what he claims to see. No, the editor says when the professor asks, the civilising hero or god is not depicted because it is considered bad luck to do so, or sacrilegious, same thing. He is represented by the whole, being part of everything that is, a primitive religious notion you've often accused of creating a predisposition to tyranny. He winks at the colonel. The colonel, with a tolerant smile, uses this interlude to collect his thoughts. He will soon lay out for the others his strategy for overthrowing the present regime. This is not a guerrilla operation, he will remind them, but a quick strike from within. Some will die, that can't be helped. But if they act briskly and ruthlessly, casualties can be kept to a minimum. He will outline some of these moves, but without releasing any details not already known to those in the room. In individual meetings later, he will add more information, telling each conspirator something slightly different, some of it false, to see if any of it is acted upon by the president, hopefully thereby singling out any traitors to their cause before it is too late. He whom the colonel is hoping to ferret out knows that the colonel will try to set a trap. He's been asked to meet with the colonel privately. He will listen attentively, but act on nothing the man tells him except as commanded nor will he expand on his clandestine reports to the president beyond these witness gatherings. Names, numbers, dates, the bare minimum. Both the president and the colonel have made him the same promise. He trusts neither of them. But soon, or sooner yet, he must choose. The colonel is the nicer man. Therefore, he will, no doubt, choose the president. He watches the daughter's vest circulating through the room, its transmission bonding the gathered insurgents and generating a heightened excitement. Anticipatory, fearful, prurient. They're moving into history. The hour draws near. When the vest reaches the former police chief, he passes it on without comment. The cold man, intent on nothing but his own ambition. The future betrayer has been asked by the president to try to recruit this man so close to the colonel, a dangerous project. He has cautiously befriended him, speaking of the general need for a private security agency and his willingness to search for financial backers. The others take up the vest eagerly, fondling it as if fondling what it once adorned. Fresh interpretations of it are offered as it moves through the room, none a match for the newsman's inventions. Shorn of its pretty curtains, the girl's white blouse seems to glow as outside the light fades. Shall he include this in his report? No, he shall not. The uncouth department store magnate, the flushed young pilot, the naval captain with his stupid remarks all ogle her as she passes. He can imagine their imaginings. When it's his turn to comment on the vest, though reluctant to feed their vulgar appetites, he will do so. The ex-professor's gaze, he notes, is one more of affection than of lust. She was once his student. What transpired between them?
The Deputy Minister of the Interior seems to be outraged by the sharing of the vest and by the salacious commentary that accompanies its travels, yet compelled somehow to join in. Though he handles the daughter's vest when it reaches him, as if it were some obscene object, he nonetheless scours it with hungry eyes. Could the Deputy Minister be a double agent, employed to keep an eye on him, to verify the veracity and completeness of his reports? Who knows? A tricky no-man's land he's in, wherein he has walked all his days, on the principle that life is short and meaningless, and one must amass what one can, enjoy it, and die whenever. The former professor, leaning back against the night-dark window, watches his fellow conspirators pass the embroidered vest around like students exchanging amorous notes in a classroom. It is the obese property developer who has it now, his chins doubling and redoubling as he contemplates it, spread out on his white lap like a gaudy dinner napkin. He brushes at it as if flicking crumbs away, an effete gas bag whose life's goal, it seems, is to eat the world. What is he doing here? The corrupting need for money and arms, their movement compromised before it can begin. When the vest reached the professor a moment ago, he proposed that the sequins, shiny as steel helmets, might represent the omnipresent military, the barbed wire circles, prisons for the rest of the populace, a nation under permanent house arrest, which prompted the colonel to remark that nothing is permanent except change itself, drawing a wry smile from several. To the extent that the colonel believes that, this insurgency becomes just another self-defeating attempt to attain the unattainable, the professor's own bitter life story, which is unchanging. On the other hand, the colonel is also an inflexible power-seeking opportunist who ultimately gives not a damn for romantic quests. Thus, the colonel may well succeed, even if the professor, mere pawn, diseased with hope, does not. The property developer now says, holding the vest up at arm's length, that those chain-stitched circles could indeed be societies or armies, as some have suggested, or even other worlds that float amid the stars, a dream of escape from the sufferings on this one. On the other hand, the sequence could be rain falling upon gardens represented by the beaded circles, a more positive image than that of an imprisoned nation, and a rural one, more appropriate to the weaver. With their roseate hues, he adds with his characteristic wheeze, gardens perhaps more in the Song of Solomon sense, the sequence as uh, ejaculate, the naval captain exclaims with a drunken laugh, though he laughs alone. The portly developer shakes his head, turns away. The colonel, though he surely disapproves, merely lights his pipe, then picks up some papers from the table beside him, shuffles through them. His daughter, her blouse aglow in the firelight, moves graciously through the banter as if not hearing it perhaps not hearing it. As her father prepares to address his guests, the colonel's daughter makes one last pass with fresh coffee, biscuits, brandy. The removal of the apron and the vest has, in the imaginations of some of those watching her, removed all else besides, making of her movements a delicious spectacle. The young pilot is in a veritable fever of rampant desire. She must and will be his. Though for the deputy minister such unholy visions, rising unbidden, are more torment than pleasure. The doctor, of course, needs no imagination to conceive of her in the flesh, only memory, having examined her often since her infancy, her body not a static image but a process. The naval captain, finishing off his brandy and helping himself to another, can perceive through her patterned skirt the sort of tender young buttocks that most arouse him and free of the doctor's professional constraints, envisions himself taking her from behind while squeezing both soft, plump cheeks in his hands, slapping them playfully, right here on the hearth. He raises his snifter in a glassy-eyed toast, his free hand swatting the air. Your health, he exclaims to the room, and with a lopsided, lascivious smirk, sinks again to his cushioned seat in the semicircle around the fire, which is largely ceremonial, instructive. The weather is autumnal enough to remind one of life's brevity, but not yet cold enough to justify a wood fire. It was the colonel's decision to light one. He wished not only to add a familial intimacy to their deliberations, but also to illustrate with fire the destructive yet restorative nature of their coming actions. One burns a field to prepare it for next year's planting, does one not? The fire crackles as logs slump into their glowing ashes and sparks fly. His daughter stoops to poke at the ashes, at a log. So, 
contained fire. Yes, the metaphor is right, the colonel is thinking. For if things go as planned, the revolt will happen quickly, with casualties in a mere handful of key locations, as he will now outline to them. Those not involved, he will assure them, will soon fall into line once the present hierarchy is no more. And for the grateful populace, this will be a liberation from tyranny. They will lie in the streets when the victors roll by and cry out their glorious names. As the colonel's daughter's vest and apron, now her skirt as well, are passed from hand to hand, eliciting a fresh round of vulgar, far-fetched interpretations, the deputy minister realises that no one in the room is incapable of betraying them. The two businessmen are particularly dangerous, for they have no allegiances to family, faith or tradition, certainly none to the nation, and are motivated only by their own avarice, which they mockingly call enlightened self-interest. The fat real estate developer in his white suit and jangling copper bracelets, the very image of corruption, now piously suggests that the skirts, bird and floral patterns represent the weaver's innocent appeal for good government, and the equally rotund department store magnet holding the daughter's silken underwear to his lumpy red nose and sniffing it appreciatively laughs at the weaver's alleged innocence and points out the treacherous black vines in the background that bind all the elements together in a sinuous network of thorny intrigue. Birds and flowers have brief lives, he says. Even the colonel's daughter, where is she gone, is not above suspicion, for one of those present may be a secret lover, the captain, the pilot, the professor. They are also gone, a crisp fold of white cloth, a glow in the firelight, draped over the back of the pilot's vacated chair, undermining her allegiance to her father. The colonel himself, who seems increasingly removed from the events around him, as if, with a placid smile, communing with a beyond, would, should things go wrong, does he hear a whimper, a slap, undoubtedly disavow his involvement and betray his own conspiracy? Potentially, so perhaps in actuality, everyone is a traitor. And all, as the professor and the pilot return, others leave the fireside, drift into the rustling shadows at his back will see him as one, too. He's doomed. How can he extricate himself without being killed? He must find a safe house. He will call the president as soon as he leaves here. He is determined not to be drawn into whatever obscenity is happening behind him, but finally fear and other urgings, more shameful even than fear, drive him to stand and excuse himself. Are they all grinning at him? Will they watch? But there is no one back there. Only the luxurious shadows of the colonel's den. The daughter has apparently left. Behind him he hears laughter. Trembling with rage, he leaves the room in search of the toilet. When he returns, the ashes in the fireplace are cold, and the colonel's daughter, dressed now in black, is receiving with bowed head those who have come to pay their final respects. The president and his wife among them, she also in black, a lace kerchief at her nose, her personal doctor at her side. The president nods, and the deputy minister is dragged away. The chairs have been pushed against the walls. The colonel's monumental mahogany casket sits in the middle of the room, draped with a hand-woven flag, the gift of the people. An expensive bottle of imported brandy has been opened, and the corpulent real estate developer is sipping it from a small crystal glass. Others soberly join him. There are angry shouts outside on the estate grounds, The president looks over at the former and future director of national security. He leaves. There is a rattle of gunfire, then silence. He returns. The president, in his eulogy, declaring a day of national mourning, speaks of the colonel's fatherly affection for his country, calling him a devoted servant of the people, a leader of men and a dear friend. He announces to all assembled that in the great patriot's honour his beautiful estate will be acquired by the state as a training ground and living quarters for young army cadets and will be named after him. The mourners nod in approval of this and raise their glasses. The colonel's daughter has indicated her desire to enter a convent. The president adds, where she will be safely cloistered away from the world's perverse and restless appetites and he will personally see to it that the family's annual contribution to the order continues uninterrupted for as long as she lives. The president gazes protectively upon her for a moment, then continues. As we are gathered, my fellow citizens, in solemn remembrance of those no longer with us, let us pause to consider the doorway into history, 
so eloquently evoked in a renowned monograph by one of our leading, late, lamented scholars, and through which many of the nation's most distinguished citizens have so recently passed. Only a few of us find this doorway. For most of us, it is the doorway into oblivion that finds us, a doorway we shy away from until, in pain and terror, we're propelled through it into the eternal dreamless night, vanished and forgotten. Contrarily, the doorway into history beckons us as we search for it, hurl ourselves precipitously toward it, drawn by the tragic illusion of perpetuity, even though we ourselves cannot experience it, can merely imagine it before, seduced by the teasing fantasy of human memory, we leap across the threshold, only to discover, too late, that it is the same doorway into oblivion that all those, unseeking, and thus wiser than we, have passed through anonymously. To desire something, he continues, his melancholic gaze falling again upon the colonel's daughter, is to lose it. I spoke of the tragic illusion of perpetuity, but no, my friends, it is a comic one. The ludicrous plot in which we are all trapped. The ancient Greeks referred to plot as mythos, attributing the random drift of human affairs to some sort of unknowable but glimpsable divine motion attempting to attach a certain grandeur to it, the delusion of meaning. But we are characters who do not exist, in a story composed by no one, from nothing. Can anything be more pitiable? No wonder we are all grieving. That was Hari Kunzru, reading The Colonel's Daughter, by Robert Coover. The story appeared in The New Yorker in September of 2013. So... Harry, the story is set in an unnamed country, unspecified, no characters have names. As you said, they're kind of types. Are we supposed to take this as sort of the archetype of a coup, as something in a way generic? I think so. I mean, as far as I can see, his his interest is in is in the coup as a form, almost. I mean, and and as a, as a writer it's impossible to ignore the two meanings of the word plot. I mean, you, these people are plotters. Yeah. <laughs> but also we are being asked to, to experience a, a plot in the, in the narrative sense. And, um, you know, occasionally one does think of the colonel who's orchestrating this coup as a sort of writer figure. I mean, he's, he's described in a way that's um, maybe a little Coover-esque. I mean, he's, he's a systematic, observant calculating, exacting, ultimately ruthless. And I think there is something slightly ruthless about Coover's style. Always, He has a very yeah. beady eye that he, he, um, he casts on, on the, the things he writes about. Um, you know, there's a, there's a sliver of ice there in that um, he doesn't indulge in any humanization beyond the, the sort of minimal level that you need in order to sort of draw these characters and and what he seems to be interested in is the kind of um tension in this room the 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 there are i think there are 10 men in the room and the and the colonel's daughter moving among them serving them drinks and snacks and uh this system has a kind of temporary stasis it it can exist for a moment you know it's it's it, it's uh something will happen to disrupt it, and of course something does. Yeah, although in the beginning, when in that first paragraph where he talks about, you know, they've entered, they've cr- passed through the doorway into history, and now there's no going back, does it feel a little as though they've entered, you know, no exit? This is sort of Sartre's version of the afterlife, that hell is being in a room with, with nine men plotting <laughs> a coup for the rest of your days it is like that isn't it i mean the 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 room is a little world and and the i mean the only kind of hint of the outside world is is the the garden you know night gradually falls and the the garden outside and um and then by the end the shadows have invaded the room and actually it seems that the reality of even this little bubble is slightly compromised you have the sort of panicking person wondering what's happening behind him and is there there's some sort of suggestion that you know a rape could be going on or some sort of uh other kind of 
thing that he doesn't quite want to look at or maybe he wants to participate in, but when he turns around, there's nothing there. There's no substance. Yeah. The, the moment where the professor looks out at the garden is interesting to me. Because, you know, he notices, he makes a point of noticing that there are exactly the same number of statues outside as people in the room and that perhaps this sort of grieving virgin would represent the colonel's daughter in the back there. Do you think, are we supposed to see what he's seeing as some kind of, I don't know, window into the future? He's got the doorway into history behind him. I guess so. I mean, he's he's the disabused person. I mean, he's, he's in this room, even though he knows it probably means his own death. I mean, the, the logic of his life and his political convictions have led him to participate in this. But he's he suspects what's actually true is that the others have no time for him and you know will yeah. put him up against the wall even if they're successful. Um, and I suppose statues are real people transmuted by history. There's a sort of alchemy of history where um, which we see taking place in the story where you know we see at the end that the the coup has been unsuccessful but various um, prominent citizens of the country have uh, become national symbols you know the colonel is is now this thing that can be deployed by the president for political ends you know draped in a, a lovely hand-woven national flag no doubt with some symbols right woven into it actually that final speech the president gives is sort of fantastic when he he refers back to this doorway into history and contrasts it with a doorway into oblivion and then says well actually they're the same thing as you find out as soon as you know <laughs> you pass through i mean that's that's a sort of terrifying aspect of the story in that certainly for the more you know the less straightforwardly venal members of the of the the plot the conspiracy Transforming the country or, or being part of history is important to them. And uh, and yet you step through the threshold between life and death and you're as dead as anybody else, even, <laughs> uh, you know, even if what you thought you were going to get was immortality or um, being yeah, transmuted into a statue. Yeah. So let's go back to the, uh, the colonel's daughter, who's the only one who's not plotting. Mm. Um, and yet she's, you know, she's the title and she's at the center of everything that happens in that room. What do you think um, Coover is doing with her? Coover seems to have quite a long history of, of um, let's say, fe- well, not even female archetypes, but of, of, of uh, women who exist as figments or as, as, as kind of functions of male desire. I mean, the, you know, in this story, we have these um, powerful men who are very accustomed to looking on a young woman as a potentially piece of property um, who then, you know, get their hands on on her fabric, on, <laughs> on her um, her dress. And, you know, clearly that's a sort of metonym for, for her body. But the striptease goes on, first her apron, then her vest, then, then the dress, and then suddenly at one point the department store magnet seems to have her underwear. But she vanishes. She... She goes, and and there's this sort of element to that, where this to this sort of strip tease, which I I I can't help but read through his obsession with language. I mean, she's covered in signs and symbols. They all do this parlor game of interpreting the the various meanings of these of uh, these sort of woven symbols, um, and yet the thing that that is the, the there that should be there, which is, you know, her her body, herself in some more substantial way just sort of vanishes. And, and you know, he's somebody who really in a, 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 a... He had a very profound intellectual engagement with structuralism and post-structuralism and the idea of the language as a system of signs that doesn't necessarily have any connection to the world that the signs are describing you know you get lost in this forest of signs looking for the end of all your searching and what do you find just more signs and that's what they you know these these men hope for something i mean they hope for transformation or they hope for personal enrichment they hope for something from the coup and what do they get they get a few scraps of cloth and and laughter sniggering off (laughs) off stage so there's a 
the hollowness of the daughter herself or her kind of absence at the end of the the kind of plotting section of the story is it seems to be seems to stand in for the same sort of thing as as when you step through the the threshold and you you know you're looking for the meaning the ultimate truth and all you get is is you know silence and death yeah yeah what the president calls the delusion of meaning mm. and the president seems at the very end of the story to have have a consciousness of himself as a character in a robert coover story <laughs> you know there i mean he's he says um we're characters who do not exist in a story composed by no one from nothing. Can anything be more pitiable? <laughs> <laughs> do, what do you think Hoover's doing with that line? Is it a kind of jab at himself, or? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's, it's. I think he finds it's, it's funny. He's, he's always wryly amused by the chase after meaning i think that's that's one of her, one of the pleasures of reading him is that you know his the revelation that we're you know we're lost in the forest of signs and symbols is not without pleasure you know it's not it's not it's funny our pretensions are funny our kind of the very idea that we could set down some you know we could type on a screen and that there would something real would be in the story is a, is a vain pretension that all writers to some extent indulge in and you know and he's there to to take pleasure in the telling but without ultimately believing yeah it's almost like those you know the the scenes of these men trying to interpret this apron and this vest are sort of us looking in a mirror and we're trying to interpret this story and inside this story they're trying to interpret that story and and it goes deeper and on and on and on and everyone brings out their own interpretation according to their own what they want to see i think that's true i mean there's a sort of tension in in robert coover between that kind of idea which you know you think of as quite a I mean, maybe an academic or intellectual idea about about meaning and his very, very serious engagement with fairy tales and with myth and with a kind of deep kind of logic of storytelling. I mean, um, when I met him, he, he told me that he'd spent a lot of time with Angela Carter. Their friendship was very important for him. And, you know, of course, the things that they do with fairy tales are very different. Yeah. But you realize that he is interested in in a kind of profound grammar of storytelling which fairy tales have and that you know I think he sees as um you know as, as something very fundamental to how we organize the world and our understanding of the world I mean he you know he's uh, he's written many retellings of of, of fairy tales and uh, you know some of them very amusing in indeed I mean there's a sleeping beauty versions where everything kind of the Prince is kind of constantly attempting to get to Sleeping Beauty and so on and so forth. So, I mean, this coup as a, a modern mythical moment, you know, we are familiar with the lineaments. I mean, it seems like it's probably a Latin American coup. I mean, that would, I, I would guess that, that that feels like the cultural hinterland of it. But it's a, it's a form that he wants to, that, that he wants to examine its grammar. Yeah. Well, I actually, I asked him about it at the time when we published it, and he said, though it's a small country, seemingly Catholic, more or less powerless, with an indigenous population ruled by autocrats and outside money, and thus reminiscent of typical banana republics, I thought of it more as a folktale or movie setting, universal and archetypal, such that with minor changes, it could take place in any country wherein such conditions exist. So... Even even in this story, he was thinking of folk tales and mm. and movies and some and a sort of genre, in a sense. I suppose we have the genre of the coup, yes. <laughs> or at least of the recounting of the coup, um, or the the fictionalization of it. Um, and then he does what he does with fairy tales, which is he subverts it, and what we get is is this very odd twisting of time at the end. Someone goes to the bathroom and comes back <laughs> and, and it's all everything over. has changed. Um, what do you make of that moment? I, I think, I mean, it's a wonderful leap in that it is it, it, it it's immediately takes you into into the logic of dream rather than uh, rather than of any sort of stable kind of narrative. And then you and that really does point out that Yes, we're in we're in the realm of archetypes, and um, 
all these figures have their place in a sort of pageantry, you know, if not an eternal pageantry, then at least a sort of pageantry of modern politics or modern power politics. The forces that are arrayed in the room are the typical forces that would have to be deployed in order to take power in any small country. And, um, yeah, we, we go straight from this sort of moment of hope and potential, you know, having just crossed the threshold into history to the, the solemn pageantry of a funeral, of a national day of mourning for the colonel and the absolute hypocrisy, clearly, of the, of the, the man who has orchestrated all these deaths, leading the mourners and, uh, and uh, you know, indicating that the colonel's family have generously decided to <laughs> be expropriated of all their property for, so the state can have a, a you know, army training school. <laughs> um. What do you think happened in that sort of blink when we were off in the bathroom? Do you think the betrayer... First of all, did you work out who the betrayer was? I'm very bad at these kind of things. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I'm not an Agatha Christie-ish kind of uh, crossword puzzle. Based. So I, I, I was... No, I didn't work. Do you, do you know who is the betrayer? Well, I, I can't be sure. Well, I, <laughs> but I, I'm yes, right. I, but right. but quite almost everyone is eliminated from possibility simply by the fact that they're observed by right. the betrayer while doing something. And at the end, you have present the president the, and his wife and the doctor. Right. The, the personal physician for the, the, the He's colonel set up and the to wife. Being the, um, as being the one so who... So presumably it was him, yes. but possibly it was someone else. Although the um, the uh, the policeman seems to be back in favor as well. He's he's uh, I can't remember if he's observed in the... Latter parts of the story. Yeah, no, he I think yeah, I think he okay. was not he was not a candidate for <laughs> <laughs> for that. But this was another thing I, I asked Hoover about, and and he said, you know, he 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 has a riddle in the story to keep it entertaining, but that the real mystery at the heart of the story is the daughter. Yes, we have no interiority for her at all. There's never. You know, lots of things are suggested about her, and she's the object of all sorts of fantasies. But um, she's never you know, she's a black box, isn't yeah. she? She's a, she is a, an unfathomable mystery. Yeah, he says the the essential and guiding element is the disturbing presence of the daughter, who in effect changes the way the narrative works. Mm. So. I mean, it's very tempting to head into sort of metaphors of weaving and things <laughs> with her as a sort of shuttle. Yeah. You know, these guys are sort of fixed in, in, in position in the room and she moves in between them, threading something, you know, creating some sort of situation. Or perhaps ultimately she's just too distracting. You know, she's, she's this physical embodiment of their desire. Mm. They're taking her clothes off and they forget to plan their coup. Yes, they could have all. <laughs> you know? Yes, they could have all got distracted by whatever may or may not have been happening in yeah, the shadows. Yeah. Um, either way, she survived it. Yes. Um, or that she's chastely going off to the she's convent. She's going off to the convent to <laughs> avoid a repeat performance. Do you think the president killed? You know, had the colonel killed? I think so. Yes, yeah. I think the president. It seems like he has his. Uh, information tendrils in the room you know whoever it's going to come from you know all it will take is is one person to to um become so fearful that they try and save themselves by spilling the beans i mean the whole thing is incredibly fragile and um it makes you wonder how any coup works <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> i mean the kind of the, the sort of trust it must take i mean the, you know and the leap of faith in that in that kind of almost kick guardian sense of 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 having to just trust your very life to a bunch of venal, untrustworthy, self-centered so and sos. You know, you're 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 taking this leap, and you know either you'll be the president of the country, or you you know, or you're going to be a corpse. And and it's uh, yes, yeah, a reason not to engage in politics. <laughs> <laughs> It's too stressful. <laughs> I, I mean, I think of this story ultimately as as quite funny, but the, there's the moment you know you go through this whole plot, you get pulled in trying to solve this riddle, in a sense, or figure out what's happening, and at the end he spits out this long speech 
uh, which is sort of Shakespearean. You know, we're, we're players on a stage. Yes. <laughs> we're completely meaningless. <laughs> um, what you've just read is is means nothing. I mean, Coover is interested in politics. I mean, a lot of his work has has had a very strongly political content. I mean, I I think I saw the other day that somebody's. Um, uh, republishing this extraordinary early seventies book about the cat in the hat standing for president, mm-hmm. which is a, in a, a little a little novella that he he wrote, and so he uses this kind of um, technique of exposing the systems and the structures and uh, you know the the ways things work, the machinery of things, you know to. to to in a way sort of debunk a certain sort of of nonsense that that, that hangs around politics. I and mean, he's he's you know he's pulling back the curtain to show the the machinery whirring around. You know the story was published five years ago, but you do get little flashes, perhaps, of the Trumpian White House. Absolutely, and <laughs> I mean, you know, I I I very much hope that he has his eye quite firmly set on that place because I think he has things to tell us about it. He feels that he understands how power works, yeah. and he's he's not romantic in a certain way. Not like at he's all. very much yeah. a disabused observer of the things that he writes about, and that's uh, so he's not hoping in a way. I mean, maybe that's the that's what makes him quite useful is that he he's not like reaching for a redemptive narrative at this point. Because you know, plenty of people seem extraordinarily addicted <laughs> to the idea that it's all going to come right in that the there end. There will be meaning yes. somewhere, yeah. and instead, you know, we, we're being forced to live through this very sordid period, which I don't think has any kind of higher significance, except you know, in a way, has actually exposed a lot of the um, pageantry for what it is. I mean, we, you know, we you realize that things that were we we trusted that certain things would. Uh, would be done, and that honor would would dictate the, the dealings between parties. And actually, no, it doesn't. And what happens if somebody disregards all these old conventions completely? You see a, a rather sort of messy, kind of corrupt politics—a politics that I think people didn't think existed here, or were able to fool themselves that didn't exist. In a sense, he's telling us that that. In life, there are archetypes as well. You know, yeah. that what we're surrounded by are archetypes, particularly yes. in politics. I mean, it's interesting to me, like kind of this tension between, you know, archetypes are sort of stable that you kind of decode the the world into these fundamental archetypes, like the sort of thing that, that Canadian Jordan Peterson tries to sell us and a much more sophisticated notion of how meaning is made and the fact that these uh, these archetypes are always slightly provisional. That you know, you undress the colonel's daughter, and there may be no there there. <laughs> the emperor, it's sort of the opposite of the emperor's new clothes. Exactly. <laughs> it's just the the daughter's body is is missing. Well, thank you, Harry. Thanks so much. Robert Coover is the author of eleven novels, including *The Public Burning*, *Gerald's Party*, *The Brunus Day of Wrath*, and *Hawk Out West*, which was published in 2017. His story collection, Going for a Beer, Selected Short Fictions, was released earlier this year. Hari Kunzru's most recent novel, White Tears, published in 2017, was an Amazon Best Book and a finalist for the Penn Jean Stein Award. His fiction has been appearing in The New Yorker since 2007. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Robert Coover reads a story by Italo Calvino, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, 
Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. 